Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. My name is Kate Semino, and I'm with our Center for the Study of Politics and Governance here at the Humphrey School. Uh, pleased to see you here today, enjoying the last, maybe the, one of the last nice sunny days before our, I don't know, snowstorm that we're getting. What's, why do we live here? Uh, so uh, many of you attend quite a few of our programs. For some of you, this might be your first time joining us. Uh, and so I do want to thank, as we always do, some of our major donors who support our programming that are listed on the back of your program. Um, these organizations support some of our larger initiatives. We also have individual donors at every level. And so much like your public radio pitch, uh, please know that if this content of these type of conversations are the type of thing that are meaningful to you and that you appreciate, we welcome your involvement in our donor circle. The gift to our center goes through the University of Minnesota Foundation, and so that is a charitable gift to the U of M Foundation. If you're interested uh, in finding out more or talking further or have any questions about our programming, feel free to get in touch. My email and phone number is on the program here, and our team, um, all of our folks are here today as usual. So uh, I also want to point out a few of our upcoming programs in the next few weeks. We've got quite a few on um, some good topics on, so if you're on our email list, you will have seen these or you can visit our website, but on Monday, April 15th, uh, one week from today, we've got Alexander Hertel Fernandez um, talking about conservatives' efforts to uh, influence states. We have uh, Theta Scotchpole coming out on Thursday, April 18th, that's a week from Thursday, and then Hari Han, um, both talking kind of about community organizing and a number of different topics about advocacy and organizing over the next few weeks, so check those out. Um, some of you may have had on your radar that our team that has been going around the state talking about the aging of Minnesota's workforce. We've been in uh, Thief River Falls and in Marshall and up in Chisholm. We're headed down to Austin. Our initial attempt to go to Austin was rescheduled due to one of the many um, winter events that has occurred this year, and so we are rescheduled to go to Austin on May 3rd, and all are welcome to join there. That's an hour and a half event down at the Hormel Historic Home um, talking about workforce in southeast Minnesota and particularly how older workers can be part of the solution to uh, some of the state's workforce challenges. So with that, I think I'll ask you to silence your uh, mobile phones, if you would, and turn it over to Professor Larry Jacobs to welcome today's guests. Thank you, Kate Semino, and thanks to all of you joining us. Um, I do want to emphasize the silencing of phones. Um, uh, we're also going to be using question cards. It's not in any way to filter out uh, questions, challenging questions. We love those questions. We have a bias towards those questions. The only reason we do this is because it helps our friends in the media, um, and particularly uh, Minnesota Public Radio, to broadcast these programs so it goes to a larger group of people. So. Send me your questions, be tough. We love that. Um, it's a great pleasure um, to uh, have this event, to have it with Professor Jane Kirtley. Uh, the issue of free speech it never seems far from our national debate, um, and maybe particularly today. Uh, professor Kirtley is the SILA Professor of Media Ethics and Law at the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communications. She's written uh, friend of the brief, uh, friend of the court briefs for the Supreme Court. She's published uh, two books. She is a well-known, well-regarded, uh, often quoted uh, expert here at the university, and someone that many of us turn to for sage advice about issues around 
the First Amendment. I think you will see, as I have for many years, that uh, Professor Kirtley is uh, one of those umpires behind the home plate who calls strikes and balls, and this is not about party ideology. So you can spend the whole time today wondering which side of the, the 50 yard line she's on and you're gonna be frustrated. This is not what this is about. This is really trying to understand a core principle of what makes America special, that we have this, this core right to free speech. Please give a warm welcome, Professor Jane Curley. Hi, everybody. I, I had cataract surgery about a week ago, so I'm scared trying to get up on this platform. So forgive me for taking an extra minute. Um, Professor Kirtley, let's start at the beginning. Why is free speech such a uh, critical part of uh, America? If you think back to where we began as a revolutionary people, you know that one of the things that the crown, the British crown tried to do was to suppress dissent. And so whether we're talking about Tom Paine or we're talking about the anonymous commenters who were published by the Swiss publisher, John Peter Zenger, who was tried for seditious libel in the late 17th century. We know that it is in the interest of government, however we define government, to try to suppress dissenting views. And so if you look back at the history of the way the First Amendment has been construed by the Supreme Court, especially in the 20th and now 21st century, you see a very clear pattern that says speech that we hate, speech that we find disturbing, is the speech that needs the most protection. If everybody agreed, we wouldn't need a First Amendment, would we? Because what it's all about is protecting the right for those with diverse viewpoints to be heard. Now, of course, that doesn't mean to be heard without consequence. We all take responsibility for what we say. But the notion is that the government can neither suppress or favor speech with which it disagrees or agrees. And if you think back, and I'm looking around the room here, if you think back, for example, to the civil rights era, when one of the greatest Supreme Court decisions ever to come down, New York Times versus Sullivan, reinforce the right to express viewpoints and to even sometimes get the facts wrong in the interests of trying to inform the public, in that case, about what was happening in the South during that rocky period with the end of segregation and the establishment of civil rights for all. You can see that disfavored speech sometimes becomes mainstream speech. We just don't know, but we know it's not going to happen if the government gets to pick and choose whose ideas are okay and which ideas can be suppressed. So advocates for free speech um, often find themselves pushing for the rights of those who they might find objectionable, even deeply offensive. Uh, some of the famous examples, including uh, the ACLU's advocacy for a Nazi group to march in Skogee, Illinois. Another case that's uh, also quite well known um, is from um, the 1930s when a student organization at the University of Chicago invited the Communist Party's candidate for president to come to campus. Now this was a time in which uh, fear of communism was on the rise and there was a storm of protest that broke out. The president of the University of Chicago 
gave a statement in support of the students, and here's what he said. Our students should have freedom to discuss any problem that presents itself. He went on to say that the cure for ideas we oppose, even oppose strongly, lies through open discussion rather than through inhibition. And I agree. And, and I mean, obviously, we can go back even longer than that. Uh, this is a very much an Age of Enlightenment idea. Voltaire famously advocated the notion for protecting even the speech that he hated or abhorred. And I remember when a case was going before the US Supreme Court where the Reverend Jerry Falwell was suing Hustler Magazine over a uh, advertising parody that depicted him as having his first sexual encounter with his mother in an outhouse when they were both drunk after they'd kicked out the goat. Um, the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court. I wrote an op-ed in USA Today about it, equating what Hustler Magazine and Larry Flint were doing with Voltaire. My father called me up from South Carolina and he said, I don't think Larry Flint and Voltaire are the same. <laughs> and I said, I can understand why you'd say that, Dad, but in fact, they're exactly the same. And that's what the US Supreme Court has said over and over and over again. The court has said, if we could define what outrageous speech is, what's so outrageous that it can't be tolerated, without suppressing ideas that are on the margin but have a right to be heard, then we would do it, but we can't. And I think that's the point. There are other countries that are very comfortable with drawing these kind of lines, but that's just not part of our heritage. We've seen these debates about free speech um, really taking on some public attention on campuses. We're gonna turn in a moment to President Donald Trump's executive order. But before we do that, I wanna get your sense of where we are um, in terms of campuses and what you're seeing. Um, there was a, you know, quite a, uh, um, I'd say a lively conversation on campus about a whole number of issues, including whether faculty and administrators should be creating so-called safe spaces, um, or uh, should faculty be including trigger warnings if they're gonna be difficult or maybe offensive topics raised, whether it's sexual assault issues or, or any number of other issues, um, whether there should be campaigns against microaggressions, uh, whether faculty should be punished for not using uh, preferred pronouns on campus, whether there ought to be um, civility uh, uh, rules for faculty and students with punishments if they're not met. This is a familiar uh, roster to those of us who live on a university campus, but it's, it's, it's really stirred things up. Going back again to the University of Chicago, um, recently, uh, uh, about six months ago, um, the, the um, a committee that had been appointed by the president of the University of Chicago issued a very short statement. It's remarkable how short it is given the complexity of these issues. And here's what these learned folks at the University of Chicago said. It is not the proper role of the university to attempt to shield individuals from ideas and opinions they find unwelcome, disagreeable, or even deeply offensive. The key, they went on to say, is to have freedom to debate and discuss the merits of competing ideas. I don't know how you can call yourself a university if you don't embrace some version of that statement. 
because ultimately this is the place where ideas of all sorts must be tried and tested. It's, it's a proving ground, isn't it? And it's a place to challenge the ideas, not just of students, but of faculty and others who are associated with the university of community. The only way to do that is to engage. It is not to suppress and to shut down. And again, I absolutely endorse what University of Chicago is saying, but I would also add that I think from a First Amendment perspective, any state university would really be obliged to have a similar kind of uh, statement in place. Arguably, they don't even need it because the First Amendment jurisprudence has already established that this is what universities are supposed to be all about. Now, that isn't to say that we can't be civil. I mean, I hope we can all be civil. This is Minnesota. We try to be civil here in Minnesota, right? I think that's part of, of our DNA here. Um, but civility is not the same thing as uh, saying that that means that no one can ever be made uncomfortable, no one can ever be subjected to ideas that they may find challenging and even hurtful. Um, the key is, I think, to provide the context, just like news organizations try to provide context about information about the day, it's up to the university to provide context so that everyone can feel that they have an opportunity to express their views and an opportunity to be heard. So we've seen um, students, and I would say well-meaning students, some of my students, who have um, been very clear in saying, look, some of the speech and some of the speakers who've come to campus are deeply offensive. They, they are um, abusing or continuing a pattern of um, oppression through what they say, uh, and they violate the norms of inclusivity and equity that this university is supposed to stand for. What do we say to, to those students? Well, if you really believe in equity, then I think you have to agree that at least until they've been shot down by better ideas, even bad ideas have a right to be expressed. That's how we expose them for the foolishness or stupidity that they might represent. You don't do that by saying categorically we're not going to allow you to speak about something. I think we need to give our students the tools to stand up and be able to counter those ideas that they don't like. I mean, many Supreme Court justices have said something along the lines of the best cure for bad speech is more speech. And so I'm all in favor of enabling those who feel that they are marginalized or not given an opportunity to speak to do so. I think the university should do that. In a controversy I was involved in a couple of years ago, that's exactly what I recommended. I said, if people aren't happy with this, then by all means, facilitate a platform for them and give them a chance to tell us why we were wrong. I would like to hear that. There have been some cases of um, quite conservative speakers, some of them provocateurs, Milo uh, Yanopoulos uh, gave a speech or talk at Berkeley that provoked uh, fires and, and, and rioting effectively. Uh, here at the University of Minnesota, conservative Ben Shapiro was invited um, and the University of Minnesota made the decision not to allow him to speak on the main campus here, uh, but in fact to have it at the uh, St. Paul campus. Um, and that incident has now led to a lawsuit that this is, in a sense, a way to chill free speech. Do you agree? Well, it's, it's tricky for any university or any you know, public space, for that matter, to balance uh, economic concerns with promoting the marketplace of ideas. And I think a lot of universities are struggling with this right now because they say, you know, we're looking at huge security expenditures if we have controversial speakers on campus. Um, 
I saw an article in USA Today that suggested that it, it might not be a bad idea to look closely at those budgets that universities claim that they are uh, blowing up with uh, controversial speakers. I'm not accusing anybody of cooking the books, but I think it's easy to throw out round figures of $100,000 a speaker that may or may not be based in reality. But let's assume for a minute that they are and that, and that it absolutely is the case. Well, then I think the answer is you have to come up with some equitable way to try to ensure that diverse viewpoints will be heard. And whether that's a get in line on September 1st, and if you're the first 10 people to come up with a controversial speaker, then we'll underwrite the security, or whatever it is. The critical factor is it can't be based on viewpoint. It can't be based on ideology. And, and if you're able to demonstrate that that's what drove it, then you have a problem from a First Amendment perspective. I mean, I have no idea how the Shabiro case is going to come out. I think a lot's going to depend upon the underlying facts. But I would say, just as a matter of principle, that um, universities have to be very careful not to succumb what is to sometimes called the heckler's veto. That is to say that somebody who's expressing a controversial viewpoint cannot speak on your campus because protests are likely to uh, incur, uh, are likely to incur protests. You can't be held hostage to you know, that kind of uh, uh, inappropriate reaction. Not to say it's not perfectly appropriate to protest, it is. But if it's to the point that you're basically shutting down a speaker completely, then I think the university has an obligation uh, to try to avoid that. But again, the magic formula, I don't think any university has come up with that yet. So let's move on to uh, President Trump's recent executive order. Um, this happened just a few weeks ago. Um, and in the executive order, which I have here, the president says, my administration seeks to promote free and open debate on college university campuses. Um, when he uh, made the announcement and unveiled this um, executive order, he said he was determined to stop campuses from banning uh, conservatives who were challenging, and this is his words, the rigid far-left ideology, close quote, on university campuses. Was the president uh, defending free speech? Yes, I think he was. Um, but I would add that he was being redundant because there's already existing law that says that public universities are obliged to, to do exactly what at least he says his executive order is intended to accomplish. Um, in addition to that, uh, there's another point in it which talks about the notion that public universities are required to provide this kind of open forum and that private universities or colleges must abide by whatever their own institutional standards are for freedom of speech. And of course, those vary widely. Uh, religious affiliated schools, for example, have very different standards than, than would ever be constitutionally acceptable uh, in a state land-grant school like the University of Minnesota. But, you know, so far so good in that sense, but unnecessary because that's what the law already says. But what's, what's wrong with being unnecessary? I mean, if something really matters in our country and to the president, what's wrong with doubling down on it? He's just, he's kind of taking a highlighter and saying, hey, we really mean this, and I'm going to defend this. Well, the short report. answer is because that's not all that there is in the executive order. Um, I mean, it's as fine as far as it goes, but as I told the Star Tribune, the devil's in the details. And let me just mention one detail very quickly. It says, for example, um, that the various uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget and others will take appropriate steps in a manner consistent with applicable law in the First Amendment to ensure that institutions that receive federal research or education grants promote free inquiry, including through compliance with all applicable federal laws, check, 
regulations, check, and policies. What does that mean? What does policies mean? This is one of those situations where you're effectively telling people you're gonna bind them to something that you have not yet specified, and frankly, they have no way to check out or anticipate or guard against or maybe even have input to because you know, uh, pending regulations are put out for public comment. There's no similar requirement for policies. So I would say, again, subject to uh, those things. That's the problem that I have. I, d I don't like the idea that I'm writing a blank check if I'm taking a, a, a federal grant. And of course, what the president is uh, taking aim at is the lifeblood for many universities and some colleges, which is federal grants. The University of Minnesota would practically have to shutter itself if um, those funds were cut off. And these are funds that come through congressionally uh, approved processes. It's for medical research. It's for en you know, engineering. It's for any number of projects, including for the Defense Department, have nothing to do with this debate. So what the president is essentially saying is, your head is now in the news. And if you don't meet these policies unspecified, then we're gonna pull the funding. Right, and I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of other stuff in the executive order that is not my area of interest that has to do with greater accountability on student loans and graduation rates and things like that, which I'll leave to others in the university to address. But I think this idea that you're conditioning funding for, let's say, scientific research on the university's overall free speech policy seems to me to be a bit of a disconnect. But to be fair, Congress does this kind of thing all the time when they pass expansive legislation on something and then add a carrot or a stick uh, to try to uh, cause uh, there to be uh, appropriate following of the law or enforcement or whatever the case may be. But again, what it comes down to me is the lack of precision here in terms of what the president means when he refers to policies. One of the issues that um, concerns me is actions that we might take as professors or um, President Trump in this case, and how they're perceived. And the question I have is, do you think, just by fact that the president has made this statement and issued an executive order, and now put you know, the, the flow of grants and funding for the university um, you know, in the spotlight, does that chill free speech? Does that, does that concern you that that people are gonna start almost self-censoring? Well, I think it has the potential. And of course, I think all of us in the uh, you know, faculty community, academic community, have always had to be a little concerned about uh, the, pro the possibility that those in government, and I would include state government in this, in this regard, and I mean, it's happened in Wisconsin, it's happened in some other states, where legislators have basically said, I don't like the viewpoints that are being expressed in my, my son or my granddaughter's classroom. I don't like the fact that my students are being indoctrinated with whatever they think they're being indoctrinated with, and we ought to pull a plug on funding. So in that sense, what President Trump is doing is not really new in its approach. It all goes back, to, I would say, to the same kind of debate we have here about public funding for the arts. Um, it's a political football in Congress based on whether you're on the right or the left or liberal or conservative, and nobody seems to be able to agree that their special pigeon is being protected or the thing they really hate is being suppressed. It's, a, I think, a uniquely American problem because in other countries they seem to be able to divorce these two things, the funding from the ideology, but that seems to be the way that, that we do it here in this country. So 
can it have an impact on what professors do in the classroom? I, I think, of course, it can. And one of the things we've seen in some of the other proposals has been, have been along the lines of, you're not supposed to talk about anything that's not central to the course that you're teaching. I mean, I suppose if I'm teaching physics or chemistry or something like that, I can do that in a nonpartisan, nonpolitical way. But even there, with the debate over science um, and whether it's something we should pay attention to or whether it's all made up, it strikes me that almost everything has a political element now. Whether that's good or bad, it's, it's the reality of our polarized society. So, um, you know, I'm old enough to remember back in the days when accuracy in academia was out encouraging students and even coming to class themselves to write down if they thought professors were expressing viewpoints that were not in accord with the viewpoint of that organization. So, and of course, it's happen it happened here at this university in the 1930s as we learned from uh, the wonderful exhibit that was at the library a, a year or so ago. <coughs> So, you know, we're not immune from it. In fact, it may be a uniquely American kind of witch hunt thing that, you know, let's turn in the people whose ideas with, we disagree with. But again, what, is, what a university is all about is, is testing those ideas. And I would hope that faculty members would welcome students doing that sort of thing in the classroom. That's what it should all be about. When the president says that uh, he's committed to promoting free and open debate, who determines that? Who's the one who's going to determine that, yeah, this is free and open debate, this isn't? Well, as I said before, it's the devil's in the details. I mean, it's sort of like going back uh, before Ronald Reagan uh, and his FCC abolished the Fairness Doctrine. One of the things that the Fairness Doctrine did was that it compelled broadcasters to cover controversial issues of public importance and to give those of opposing viewpoint a reasonable opportunity to be heard. It was never an equal time rule. Some people think it was, but in fact it wasn't. But what I think was significant about that, for all of its strengths and all of its flaws, one of the things that happened with the Fairness Doctrine was that the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, never attempted to tell broadcasters what those controversial issues of public importance was. They relied upon, or were, they relied upon the good faith and the reasonable efforts of those broadcasters to decide what was important in those communities. So here's my concern. Who's going to decide, if, if we're talking about somebody in Washington, D.C., what are, what are reasonable opportunities to be heard in Berkeley, California, or in Seattle, Washington, or in Minneapolis, Minnesota, or where? I mean, how are they going to do this? And I, it strikes me as an extremely difficult thing to police. And I think of federal officials and the Trump administration, but let's say in a few years there's a Bernie Sanders administration. Exactly. I mean, I, th I think this is the thing that sometimes in our zeal to try to put in place policies that we think will advance, you know, social justice or uh, rights of debate or whatever that might be, that we kind of assume everything's going to stay frozen in time. And I always tell my students, both in journalism and law school, that when you're looking at a law or a policy, you have to ask yourself, it's sort of like the, the, the ethical philosopher Rawls who talked about the veil of ignorance. You have to imagine if this policy were going to be imposed and you're not in the majority anymore or your viewpoint is not the dominant view anymore. Are you still going to be comfortable with however this policy works? And if the answer is yes, then I'd say obviously, you know, it's, it's pretty apparent that the policy would be a good one and would withstand the test of time. But if it favors one view over the other, whether it's a minority or a majority view, then I think it's suspect. Hmm. Um, 
Floyd Abrams, who's a kind of, uh, he's in the, the all-pro team for First Amendment yeah. advocates. Um, he's been talking about just the sort of issues we're talking about. And he's um, been critical of uh, President Trump's executive order, um, but he's also said it's not like there's nothing there. And he went on to say that he thinks there's a crisis on university campuses as he looks at this litany of the safe spaces, the trigger warnings, the, the civility codes, and, and on down the list. Do you have some ambivalence when you think about what the president's doing and then you know, what you're seeing on campuses? Floyd Abrams is a, is a good friend of mine and, and has been a mentor of mine, and I admire uh, much, much of what he says about the First Amendment. Um, I think that there is a bit of a disconnect in the sense that um, sometimes something like the current state of affairs is interpreted as being an attempt to suppress viewpoints with which we disagree, whoever that we is, whether it's the campus administration, whether it's faculty and students working together, whether it's uh, political uh, action groups that are coming onto campus to try to encourage greater student involvement, whatever that may be. Um, I, I guess I would say I think it is, it is worrying in its potential uh, but I, I guess because I'm a believer in the rule of law, which ought to be, remain, and I think at least since the 60s, has been pretty much viewpoint neutral. Um, you know, it may surprise some people to know, I don't know, maybe it will, maybe it won't, that people like the late Justice Antonin Scalia were great supporters of the notion of freedom of expression in a university setting or any other kind of public setting. Um, and I guess that is, that's my ray of hope in all of this that ultimately uh, we have to realize that if those with, which, who, with whom we disagree are not protected, then we are not protected the next time the wheel of fortune turns around and we're no longer the dominant view. Um, some excellent questions here from our friends in the audience. One is, um, aren't we already limiting speech um, by telling uh, folks you can't scream fire in a theater, you can't be um, you know, using fighting words isn't it already happening? Are we already kind of drawing boundaries? That's a great question. And I think what is uh, notable about it is that the two examples that you gave are probably two of the most famous examples of the very limited number of Im limitations on freedom of speech that the Supreme Court has um, sanctioned. Um, I mean, you can count on one hand the categories of speech that the Supreme Court says do not enjoy constitutional protection. And you know, even though shouting fire in a crowded theater, people often forget the modifier to that. It's falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. <laughs> if the theater's actually burning down, then for heaven's sakes, tell people to get out of there. So you know, I, I and and again, when I, I've done a lot of work internationally on freedom of speech issues, many of our friends in mature democracies are very comfortable with having a laundry list of speech that is not allowed. And they have very good and very earnest and very sincere reasons for doing it. But I guess because of our, you know, sort of uh, our history and the fact that we are not a homogeneous uh, uh, group and, and we disagree and the way we kind of uh, achieve consensus eventually is through debate and discussion, it's just not something that I think that we're comfortable here. And the limited care, uh, examples such as fighting words, uh, true threats, 
those kinds of things, that's, not only is that a very limited set of categories, but the Supreme Court has set very stringent tests for the kind of speech that would fall under that because the default position under the First Amendment, which is only 45 words, default position is that we allow the speech. So let's shift into our um, vibrant social media realm. Um, we've Must seen, we? <laughs> we've seen whether it's Facebook or it's Twitter or some of the other platforms that there have been uh, some fairly um, um, provocative statements. Some, uh, as we've seen on an international stage, have incited violence. Um, and there have been uh, efforts and efforts that are in, in movement now by governments to step in and start to restrict uh, fighting words um, or you know, inciting violence. Um, how, do you, how, do, how should we think about what kinds of speech in social media we ought to be restricting? Should white supremacists who have been linked to violent acts, should their speech be restricted um, based on uh, a history that's been associated with them, for instance? I think it's really dangerous to get into the business of censoring speech prospectively. I think you're going to say something bad, so therefore you're not allowed to talk. I, you know, it, it's like they, in, in the old Soviet Union, they used to put people in prison because they might be thinking about committing a crime. I'm not making that up. And it seems to me that this is very similar to that. You might say something bad in the future. And in fact, a very important US Supreme Court case that came out of this very state, near versus Minnesota, one of the aspects of that case that, was, that, that caused the Supreme Court to strike down the rule in, uh, in uh, Minnesota that you could stop Jay Neer from uh, publishing his extremely scurrilous and extremely anti-Semitic Saturday press was not only that they stopped him initially, but they, they said, if you want to publish again, you must submit your copy for review by a court to decide whether it's okay for the people of the Twin Cities to read. And the Supreme Court said, you cannot do that. It cannot be done. And that goes back to 1931. So it seems to me that simply because we've moved into a new era of digital platforms and social media and run by people who you know, never heard of Jane Neer, never heard of Neer versus Minnesota, and probably wouldn't care if they did, um, it's very tempting to say, well, we can, we can say, based on what you published before, that you're going to continue in that vein and we can stop it. I just don't see how constitutionally that can be upheld, whether we're talking about uh, you know, the First Amendment or, frankly, what private actors do. Because remember, that's what Twitter, that's what Facebook are. They're not governmental entities, um, although there are some in Congress that would like to treat them as public utilities. At this point, they are not, which means that they can make up their own minds what content they're going to allow and what they're going to suppress. And frankly, the only remedy against them, at least in the United States, would be if they are in violation of their own terms of service, and then you could probably sue them for breach of contract. But that's pretty much it, and I think that's that's the way it is unless their status is changed uh, by law. Let's make this very concrete. Um, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar has been a target of death threats. Uh, she's been a target of quite hateful uh, speech. Um, imagine the following scenario. White supremacist group uh, says they are going to have a rally in uh, Representative Omar's district. And everyone who's sick and tired of what Representative Omar is saying should come ready to battle. 
I would say that falls under the category of incitement and possibly true threat, and that's not protected under the First Amendment. I, I say probably because it's going to depend upon a lot of particular details. Some people find that annoying, but that's what law is in our common law system. Uh, you have to look at the particular so, facts. So what is it in what I just said that for you is triggering and, and lead you, who's devoted your life to defending free speech, to say this is over the line, this should not be permitted. Well, I'm saying it might be, uh, you know, because it might be, um, because it is calling for uh, uh, immediate action, apparently, assembling people with the explicit idea of not just expressing our unhappiness with Ilan or Omar's policy or her statement, but I think you, how'd you phrase it, taking action or something like, come ready to take action. And the classic example with the Supreme Court has always been that you're rallying a group of people that are armed and ready to go and storm the state capitol. That's incitement. But abstract advocacy is not. And that line is sometimes not easy to draw. I, th I think that's probably going over the line, but I reserve judgment on it. So loyally of you. <laughs> I say that with just tremendous affection, of course. Of course. Everybody loves the lawyers, right? An another, um, some really interesting questions from the international perspective. Uh, first one is, why hasn't the U.S. Uh, approach to free speech uh, been adopted in the United Kingdom or Canada? That's a great question. And the short answer is that in some ways it has been. Uh, one of the uh, classic examples of that is that in the New York Times versus Sullivan case from 1964, where the Supreme Court said that public officials and later public figures had to prove what's called actual malice, knowledge of falsity, reckless disregard for the truth, a version of that has actually been adopted into positive law in uh, the United Kingdom. Um, in Canada, for example, they have sometimes uh, started to embrace some of our uh, legal principles. And a few years ago, uh, after they uh, adopted their Charter of Rights, they started looking at U.S. precedent, legal precedent, legal court rulings, as something judges in Canada could consider if they wanted to try to, um, you know, uh, parse a legal question in the media law area that they had not yet heard. So the short answer is that some of our ideas have exported, others have not, and I think part of that is for cultural reasons. Um, again, uh, just sort of the nature of those societies and their own existing precedent. But, you know, we, we can't export everything successfully. Um, I think that there have been some victories, and there have also been concepts that they've just said are not for us. Uh, Canada still has blasphemy law, for example. Um, and, you know, there, there are many reasons for that. I, I mean, I think we have to uh, be prepared to accept the notion that not everything that works for us is going to work in every other society. Of course, there are different um, modes of speech. Um, a student at this campus may decide to wear a burqa. Um, if a student had done that in, in France, they would probably be uh, forbidden, uh, prohibited from doing that. On the University of Minnesota campus in the United States, that's allowed. Is that part of what you're talking about? Yes, I think that's, that's a good uh, point, and I hadn't thought of it kind of in reverse like that, but I think you're absolutely right. You know, even in countries like Turkey, uh, up until the current regime took, took power, uh, female students could not wear the hijab to public universities. So, I mean, you might think that 
how can that be? And yet, of course, here we wouldn't even think twice about the notion that, of course, a student could do that as part of her First Amendment rights, not just her freedom of expression, but also her free exercise of religion. We have many international students here on campus, um, and many of them have to be careful what they say in public in order to avoid facing consequences when they return to their home countries. Should the University of Minnesota uh, guarantee or help to protect the free speech rights of these students when they're attending the University of Minnesota? Well, that's an interesting question too, and I, I'm not, I, I've actually thought about this over the years because I've, I've certainly had international students who have expressed to me their concerns about the consequences of things that they say and do in this country that might have ne negative ramifications for them if they return to their home country. I'm not sure the University of Minnesota as such can do a whole lot about that beyond continuing to follow the notion that free expression is free expression and we want to promote and protect that. I mean, we can't go to every repressive uh, country around the world and, and demand that they change their laws. If that sort of thing was going to happen at all, I think it would probably have to happen at the diplomatic level. The U.S. government would have to do it more than, than would be feasible to do here. But the flip side of it is I, I do think that um, while you know, we certainly want to encourage all students to exercise their free expression rights, it probably isn't a bad thing for faculty members to be aware that there can be ramifications for students, international students, when they return to their home countries. And just be aware of that in terms of particularly things that they're posting on social media or on things like uh, Canvas sites, things like that. Uh, Canvas, by the way, which is, is our university kind of class bulletin board system that replaced Moodle, is something that I have a lot of concerns about because I think it's not as secure as people seem to think it is. And I wonder sometimes if exactly what you're describing here, if those kinds of communications could be um, hacked and be subject to surveillance in other countries. But that's probably another discussion for another day. Question about a recent policy adopted by the Minnesota State Senate regarding conduct within the State Senate. Um, and the policy is oriented around non-discrimination and anti-sexual harassment policy. And this policy defines in fairly broad terms um, what it considers to be sexual harassment and includes compliments, comments on clothing. Does this sort of thing begin to edge into an area where um, free speech is an issue, or is that a different set of? I, th I think it. I think it could. Um, just as the discussion on this campus about uh, the use of pronouns uh, could just be a matter of ordinary courtesy, respect for other people with whom you work, um, and turn into something that intrudes on other people's uh, religious rights, conscious rights. I mean, any number of things. So. Um, is it possible? Of course, and I think the possibility uh, is really, again, the devil's in the details. We want people, I presume, on, uh, in the legislative uh, setting, just like any other setting, to treat each other with respect and with courtesy. Um, exactly what constitutes behavior that is above and beyond uh, the acceptability. I mean, I'm just always going to fall back on the legal standards, um, but this is really more, I think, of a, of a courtesy issue. We've been talking about free speech and free expression. Um, Supreme Court, in a famous decision, um, Citizens United, describes campaign contributions as a form of free speech. Do you agree with that decision and its, its grounding? 
You know, um, we talked about Floyd Abrams a few minutes ago. Uh, some of you may know that Floyd Abrams and Ken Starr, um, who are not exactly politically aligned, were two of the lawyers that were uh, acting uh, before and arguing before the Supreme Court in that case. Um, I think that constitutionally or doctrinally, as uh, lawyers and scholars say, I think the decision is correct. Um, I don't like it in terms of what its ramifications are for um, the whole political process. But I think that if you look at what the First Amendment says and the way it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court, and I'm thinking of some of its precedents like Buckley versus Vallejo, another case having to do with campaign contributions, I think it was probably the only uh, solution that the court could reach given the existing Supreme Court precedent at the time. They did extend it um, to a new level. I personally, I just was talking to a student about this, uh, the idea that, that money is the same as uh, speech is something that I find problematic, but I think if you look at it in the context of, of how campaign contributions have become structured and how they have really become the means by which uh, people with a variety of viewpoints can be heard and can influence elections, I, I cannot say as a matter of, of my own viewpoint that that's wrong. Hmm, I bet you didn't see that coming. Um, let me ask you one last question. We're going to bring up our, um, uh, our other panelists. Um, there's several questions here asking about, okay, free speech, different ideas, different perspectives, that's important. How about people who are just flat out lying or spreading false information? Um, should they be given protection too? That is such a great question, and, and I, I, was, I, I was addressing it last week at another talk that I was giving, and I think you know, um, when you look at, for example, the libel laws in this country, um, and you look at the way um, libel cases are litigated, it, it's very rare for a libel case where you're publishing something that is false and harms somebody's reputation to turn on the issue of truth or falsity. These days, because of cases like New York Times versus Sullivan, we get much more interested in the issue of fault, reckless disregard for the truth, did you know better, should you have known better. But the courts do not, as a general rule, decide whether something is true or false, is my point. And I think there are reasons for that, and one of the most simple reasons is that because of evidentiary rules and just the way our adversarial system of justice is structured, the courts are really not a very good place to determine what's true and what's false. And so if you will bear with me and take my word for that, then, then the question becomes, if we're not going to protect false speech, Who's going to decide whether it's false or not? And when do we decide? On, on what time continuum do we suddenly declare something is no longer in a realm of debate that it's decided? I mean, some things are decided. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. That's decided, okay? But there's an awful lot of stuff beyond that that are still open to debate. And I know that some years ago when the Los Angeles Times suddenly announced that it would no longer take letters to the editor or op-ed pieces from people who were debating on the side of saying that climate change is not created by uh, human activity, they said, we're not going to take that anymore because it's been decided. Climate change is caused at least in part by human activity. That bothered me, because I don't like the Los Angeles Times deciding across the board that this particular debate has been settled for all time. So I get the concern. I certainly understand the idea that uh, propaganda, deliberate misinformation can poison our society. We've seen it, and I'm not dismissing it in any way, shape, or form. 
I've done enough work in the former Soviet republics, Eastern and Central Europe, to know that when you are dependent upon a state-controlled media that does nothing but lie to you, this is, this is not a good condition uh, for uh, a human society uh, to, to be in. So I absolutely get that. But I think it's somewhat simplistic to assume if we can say all of this is false, that there is, on the other end of the continuum, this absolute truth. I guess I'm just not comfortable with the idea that we, we know uh, in any given time what the truth is. So you have kind of a very ancient idea of speech, which is let's, let's argue it out in public. That's let's, right. Let's not make kind of these dictums about who's right and who's wrong. Let's not prevent certain people from speaking. Let's just let's have it out in public arena. And you know, the better argument, the better arguer, is the one that's going to prevail. That's what five years of Latin couldn't do for you, I guess. I am kind of ancient, I suppose, in my view, because I think that that, that uh, form of argumentation has withstood the test of time. I mean, we may at this point in society be at an age where uh, critical thinking is not widely practiced. We may be at a time for a whole variety of reasons where people are deliberately choosing not to eat at the feast of a whole variety of media viewpoints that they can tap into, but rather just going back to the trough that reinforces the views that they already have. And I don't think that's healthy. Uh, I don't think that's healthy for individuals, and I don't think it's healthy for society. But I take the long view, because I do read history, and I think that eventually we will be able to uh, expand this world and, and to get people to realize that it actually is a good idea uh, to look at multiple sources that might ch challenge your views rather than simply reinforce them. Thank you very much. I want to invite um, Isaiah Ogren uh, to join us. Isaiah is a junior here at the University of Minnesota, and he is... Um, part of the Minnesota Student Association, or for those on campus, MSA. Um, yes, pull that a little closer. You're gonna be like, you know, Mick Jagger here. There we go, something, oh. something like that. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you've heard uh, Professor Kirtley and I chatting, and Professor Kirtley has expressed a, a fairly straightforward, um, uncompromising view about the importance of untrammeled speech. And my first question to you is, do you agree that that ought to be the paramount value, taking precedent over concerns on campus about equity and inclusion? So um, before I start answering that excellent question, I am going to stipulate that I do not represent MSA. Um, that is not the official capacity in which I am here. Speaking of uh, bodies that disagree and have a lot of viewpoints, um, we are one of them. Um, so this is, this is just me talking. Um, so I think that uh, I'm going to make what I hope is a pretty modest proposition and go from there, which is that we are and always have been shaped by our technologies and culture and the stuff that's going around. Um, and I'll, I'll make a little bit of an analogy that I think is a little out of left field, and then I'll try to land the airplane. Um, one of my professors always talked about how he, he liked to go camping, and his, um, one year his wife bought him a shirt, a wool shirt for camping that was made in Canada. And the buttons were on the opposite side of, um, you know, what we considered a standard men's shirt in the United States. And he, you know, this guy, there's no telling how many IQ points he has. He's one of the smartest people I know. And he said he stood there for a minute trying to put on his shirt and couldn't do it because it was so deeply ingrained in his fingers. So, uh, you know, if, if, we, if we take it to be a, what I think is a really modest proposition, again, 
that our technologies and culture shape us and form us in ways that we don't always understand, then we have to be very careful about saying, um, about, about how we talk about speech. Um, because I think, um, you know, one of the things that I, I was sitting there thinking is, well, this is all well and good if you assume that human beings are perfect computers. Who can, you can just input speech and you filter out the good stuff and the bad stuff and it just goes in one ear and it gets processed by your brain and the truth is found out. And, and I don't really think that that's um, how human beings actually operate. I think that's how Voltaire thought they operated. Um, but I think that you know, if you look at behavioral economics, which um, I, I, I certainly am not wanting to take away Richard Thaler's Nobel Prize, he has that for a reason, speaking of the University of Chicago, um, that we have to be really careful about viewing human beings as perfect computers. So let, let me, let's go back to the question. Yeah. Because this is a very interesting tangent. But the question I was asking is, do you think free speech ought to be the untrammeled, um, you know, uninterfered um, uh, with uh, uh, right? Um, or should there be um, uh, areas where we are compromising it? Or maybe that's too strong where we're taking into account the effects that it would have in terms of equity and inclusion and other values. So I'll give a lawyerly answer and say no, but I don't think Professor Curley does either. Because we, there are always exceptions, whether it's fire in the crowd theory or fighting words or whatever. I think that m the distinction I would make between us is that there are more exceptions that I would consider such um, as. to be legitimate from a constitutional perspective. So, and indeed, such as? So the University of Minnesota's job um, or one of the things that we pride ourselves on is our research ability and that we are going after the truth when it comes to scientific inquiry. Um, so it, it, would not, um, it, it would not make sense to me that the University of Minnesota is, is somehow obligated um, to hire a geophysicist who does not believe in climate change. Now, you can, we could argue about the merits of his research on other topics, his or her research on other topics, and of course that, that's a very reasonable thing to do. But the notion that we're somehow obligated to provide balance or, or to, to do that just for the sake of that balance to me doesn't make much sense if we really are uh, invested in going after the truth. There is a normative element that can be lost. Should students be subjected to certain speech um, on issues about race, sexual identity, um, political ideology that they might find not just wrong, untruthful, but deeply, deeply offensive. And, and I would add harmful into that. So let, let's take the example of um, a soldier who has PTSD. And one of the ways that that can manifest is a sensitivity to sound. So would you force that soldier to sit through um, a musical appreciation class of Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, which includes the canon and could potentially um, send that person into a post-traumatic um, stress disorder incident. I, I don't think it would be a reasonable thing to do so. I think we can all agree that things presented in classrooms can, in extreme circumstances, cause harm. But doesn't so that student who has P, uh, who's had this you know, trauma, um, don't they have the choice not to be in the room? Well, the, the way it was phrased a minute ago was that it would be inappropriate for universities to even warn that student that the 1812 overture was being played and that that would somehow chill speech. So, and if the class was required, that student may indeed have had to be required to be in the room. Um, so to me, it, it makes sense that we should be sensitive um, to when topics presented in classrooms are not only disquieting, 
but are actually causing harm. There are also multiple ways um, to have conversations about that issue that do not involve the most extreme forms of speech that could indeed cause harm. Professor Kirtley? Um, I guess I'm thinking a couple of things. Uh, some of you may not know, although I'm sure the other people on the podium with me know, that, that we have um, uh, a center here on campus that works with students who have a whole variety of disabilities, including things like PTSD. And students have the right to go and seek counseling. And as a professor, I get a letter from uh, that office, and it tells me, um, here are the steps, that, the reasonable accommodations you have to make to be able to serve this student and not to undermine the central purpose of your class. I've never heard, maybe it's happened, but I've never heard of a professor say, I'm not going to do that. That's going to impede my uh, academic freedom or my First Amendment rights. I think, though, that it is incumbent upon the student to seek that kind of assistance and, to, and so that we can get that kind of guidance. And of course, you could also try just the, the simple expedient of the student going to the professor and saying, I need some help here to accommodate my particular needs. It, it just seems to me that having the office helps to add, act as sort of a buffer and to, to have an institutional way of trying to balance those things. But, you know, I, I uh, teach a media ethics course, and in the last couple of weeks, I've had a couple of news photographers coming in who have shown some pretty disturbing images. And both they and I have warned our students that we're going to be seeing some disturbing I images, but there's a reason for that, which is what we want to talk about from an ethical perspective, how journalists make their determinations about whether they will take those photographs and whether they'll publish those photographs. And one of my students said, I would rather that you took a chance on offending me by showing me this material than just decide for me that it's too disturbing and I can't see it. And it strikes me that that kind of dialogue part of the whole marketplace of ideas I've been talking about is the way we deal with the kind of concern that you raised. Mr. Ogren, does that sound sensitive to you? That sounds perfectly fine to me. I would say that you shouldn't flunk the student if a student said, um, I wish to not uh, see these images. I would say that you shouldn't flunk them. I think that that's a, another very modest proposition. I the, wouldn't dream of it. <laughs> yeah. um, Mr. Ogren, I'm, 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 I'm curious um, about how you would size up um, kind of the climate at the University of Minnesota. Do you feel that there's students or faculty who feel that um, they shouldn't say certain things that they believe in? They're kind of saying, ah, how's this going to be perceived? What is the reaction going to be? So I think uh, you're asking about self-censorship. Is that, is that correct, either in the classroom or just around campus? It could be self-censorship. It could just be... Um, um, yeah, it could come in a lot of different forms. So, certainly in, in the sense that I, you know, we have quite reasonable anxiety about, um, you know, determining truth or falsity or, or even determining, you know, what someone meant in their heart of hearts when they say something. I, you know, it, it seems to me hard um, to me to assess how someone feels about their speech when they're talking about it. I, I have heard those concerns from folks. Um, you know, one of the privileges of serving in the position that I do is I inter interact with a lot of uh, student group representatives. And so I have heard particularly from some conservative student group representatives that they, you know, have some anxieties about, um, you know, expressing their conservative viewpoints on campus. But my, my rejoinder to that is always, well, when you have done so, have you suffered any, you know, material consequences? I'm not talking about people disliking that opinion. I'm not talking about people disagreeing with you. Have you ever had a paper docked? because you took a conservative uh, viewpoint? And the answer is pretty inevitably no. 
So when people aren't suffering material consequences, it's hard for me to, to see something, a problem that the university must rectify. Jane Kirtley, does that strike you as the right standard? Uh, material harm is the standard. I don't know how you define that. I mean, lawyers spend a lot of time trying to determine uh, how that how that would parse, and I'm trying to think how it parses in a university setting. Thinking about faculty for a minute, I suppose the answer would be if, you know, if I'm up for tenure and I get denied tenure and I claim it's because of my conservative or my liberal views, whatever they might be, um, that would be a material uh, consequence, I think, and, and one that would probably give grounds to uh, grievance proceedings here at the University of Minnesota. In a student context, it's probably more, you know, do I get my, do I get my F or do I get my A or something in between. Um, again, I think probably the more extreme example would clearly be if the university was prohibiting certain kinds of speech, you know, as, as a you know, in, in block and just say, these following ideas, these kinds of statements are so disturbing to the, you know, common wheel at the University of Minnesota that they may not be uttered, they may not be expressed. That would be the most extreme example. I think, you know, what you're talking about is probably uh, a good starting point anyway for the discussion. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, I've had any number of students here at the Humphrey School who have come up to me and say, I'm a conservative and a Republican. I'm like, you haven't talked all term. I'm like, yeah, because everyone else is, you know, liberal and a Democrat, and I know my views would be unpopular. And, you know, and that's, I, that's I, I, I find that really interesting. And I, I had a law student in one of my classes last spring who said, you know, your class is the first one where I really felt free to express my viewpoints. And I thought, I don't understand, I really don't understand that. Because I tell my students from the beginning of the semester that, you know, Again, Supreme Court says no such thing as a false idea. I want to hear your ideas, and I want you to feel absolutely free to express them here. Not with no consequences in the sense that, you know, you're diverting the discussion to something unrelated to the class or something like that. I'm going to ask you to knock it off, and let's get back to the topic. But in terms of you disagree with me, you think Citizens United is the worst thing the U.S. Supreme Court ever did, I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to debate it. I'm happy to discuss it. I think that's what we're supposed to do. And I have to say, I've had colleagues both at the Humphrey School, but, but elsewhere, uh, particularly elsewhere, around campus who say, you know, and they look at some of the debates that break out and um, kind of the backlash if they're outside of a, you know, kind of the liberal norm mm -hmm. on, you know, whether it's the pronouns right. or it's civility norms uh, or it's the idea of free, you know, kind of these safe spaces and trigger warnings, that they're fearful of that. They're like, you know, why stick your neck out and get it chopped off? I mean, I've heard that any number of times. Is well, that then, I guess I would say, you know, where is their intellectual intestinal fortitude? I mean, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, you know, if, if you're that bothered by it, then why aren't you involved with the faculty consultative committee or some other university faculty or otherwise based group and saying, let's discuss this, whether this is really a problem on campus or not. Is it people on the left? Is it people on the right? Or is it everybody who's scared to talk anymore? I mean, good grief. This is the United States of America. We're on a state university campus. We ought to feel free to express our views. Again, not to, not, not to be insulated from the consequence of those in the sense that our students may be mad at us, our colleagues may shun us. That, that's happened to me. I've seen it happen to other people when I express certain viewpoints. It goes with the territory if you're going to be in a place that claims to be a place for debate and intellectual inquiry. And I think students need to learn that uh, early on. And I'm sorry to hear that some of your faculty co uh, colleagues haven't seemed to learn it yet. 
Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> the, the, call, the call to take on the fight. Mr. Ogram, I want to ask you about a survey that uh, the Gallup polling organization uh, released. And the question was, the climate on my campus prevents some people from saying things they believe because others might find them offensive. And this poll reports that uh, there's been an increase in those saying they strongly or somewhat agree with that comment about this, this um, tendency of people um, not saying things because they're fearful that it might be seen as offensive. And here's what's interesting. In the most recent um, uh, poll, um, there are more Democrats who say that they're concerned about um, saying things than Republicans. If you go back to 2016, it was Republicans rather than Democrats who were saying that they were kind of holding back because they didn't want to be seen as offending people. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't particularly surprise me. Um, you know, the, during the last uh, few months of the Obama administration, if you ask Democrats, how do you feel about the economy, they all said pretty good. And you know, just a few months later, with no real material changes in macroeconomics, you ask them the same question, and it was the Trump administration at it pulled poorly. So I, I tend to think that people um, react fairly strongly um, to you know, larger you know, kind of macro-political signals. So um, it, do, it doesn't necessarily surprise me, but, but I do think that there is a question that's, that's worth engaging here. Um, of again, what, what we consider consequences to be. And so th that's what I'm kind of interested in because, and, and like you said, there's a difference between folks disagreeing with you and getting up in your face and having really you know, tough dialogue um, and you being denied tenure. So I, I wonder if, if what kind of consequences were in the minds of those students. Because when I have conversations with my fellow students about it, um, usually people disagreeing with you and, and maybe even very forcefully disagreeing with you in public is a consequence. And I put air quotes around the word consequence in the minds of most of my fellow students. And, and then, you know, the law is not particularly well equipped to deal with that definition of consequence. So I think that really matters in terms of how students are reacting. A hmm. uh, question from the audience. Um, it's a complicated question, but it, the, the thrust of it is that um, whether there has been um, kind of a liberal tilt because of requirements uh, such as um, diversity and social justice um, or classes on stories of resistance and change on campus. Does this represent a kind of liberal um, um, kind of expectation on campus? Maybe. Is there, is, there, is there a liberal intent in teaching, um, you know, evolutionary biology? Um, I know a lot, I'm from Dallas, Texas, and I know a lot of folks in Texas who would say, yes, there absolutely is. But how about, um, how about a class with a title, Stories of Resistance and Change? So I think then you have to ask, is it a question, also a question of academic inquiry? Because the, the basic stories of American history have been told and told well and retold and retold after that, almost ad nauseum. So, you know, part of you have to ask is, is it worth telling stories that haven't been told up to this point? And I think that there's a very legitimate, just purely academic point to say, yes, there is. And if that's liberal, I'm okay with it. Professor Kirtley, I assume you agree with that? How do you define liberal 
You know, that too. I, I mean, there there is a you know there's a requirement for College of Liberal Arts students to take liberal education courses. I mean, th that doesn't mean they're going to be indoctrinated in Maoist philosophy, although that might be a course that they might choose to take. I mean, the point is, you know, liberal I would hope means liberal in the sense of trying to explore a whole variety of uh, viewpoints and the vast history of our society and looking ahead. And and I don't I don't know how anybody can object to that unless they basically basically have already decided that there's only a, a limited amount of inquiry and discussion that students should have. I don't happen to agree with that. You know, I'll just add one quick comment, and I, you know, I teach in this department that's associated with the College of Liberal Arts. And these days, I know a lot of people in CLA are feeling very much under siege because they're seeing the greater concentration of STEM courses uh, being pushed by the legislature, being pushed by others, suggesting that that's the only way that kids will ever get a job when they're out of college, and that's what they should be doing. And I can only say that with all respect to STEM, which I think is really important, I have to say that if that's all you're learning in a university setting, then you are only tapping into a tiny bit of what's available to you to really become an educated person that can participate in our democracy in a meaningful way. If that makes me a liberal, then for the next 30 seconds, I guess I'm a liberal. Um, sometimes I worry about the images we get different parts of our society, including our lawmaking branches, because of this feeding frenzy that breaks out with the media. They rush to cover something, and it's usually a spotlight on something that's it's kind of disturbing. That's why they're part covering, because they want to get audience and advertising dollars and so forth. I, I mention that because it, it concerns me a little bit if people are mostly hearing about universities in terms of these extraordinary events like uh, conservative speaker coming to a campus and then, you know, kind of a, a riot breaking out, or debates about uh, safe spaces and trigger warnings. How would you describe kind of the, the kind of um, baseline nature of speech on campus? Do these kind of snapshots that, that folks are getting who are not on campus, are they accurate or are they really creating a kind of distorted view of things? Well, I think I, I, I like the word snapshot because that tells us what's happening at a particular time in a particular place and, you know, particular time space continuum. Um, and I think it's important for the news media, and they don't already always do this, is to put it in a context. Um, you know, one incident may not be very telling. If it becomes a regular pattern and practice, then it maybe is. Um, an informal reaction to something might not mean nothing or might mean a great deal, but if it becomes ingrained in policy, an enforceable policy that could result in students being expelled or faculty members being fired, then I think that's a significant story that needs to be told. But again, my point would be, there's an awful lot going on on any university campus, and the important thing is to try to provide context as to whatever you're reporting on. Mr. Ogren, do you feel that on this campus that conservative viewpoints, speakers um, are represented? Or is it, do you see them coming through, or is it, um, as the media tends to portray it, kind of a, a more of a left-oriented um, set of views that are presented? Well, the University of Minnesota is, broadly speaking, a progressive campus. I don't think there's any way to deny that if you just look at historically what the University of Minnesota has been at the forefront of. Um, that being said, you know, I have a number of conservative colleagues that I enjoy speaking with, and I, I don't think um, the idea that there's some sort of repression on campus um, is accurate. Hmm. 
And when you think of kind of these snapshots that, you know, folks who may not pass through campus at all in their, you know, their daily life, they're just kind of picking up a snapshot. And the snapshots tend to portray these big battles on free speech and, and, and suggest there's a climate of, of really, you know, repression of conservative ideas, self-censorship. Does that media portrayal strike you as accurate or...? It does not strike me as accurate, and and you know sometimes that's because I think that the media gets it wrong with how they cover it, but also some of it's just impossible to cover. You know, on a university campus, some of the best discussions about political stuff and and just ideas in general, it's happening in dorm rooms, it's happening at hockey games, it's happening in bars, and you, you don't you know unless you have just super dedicated shoe leather reporters that are going into Blarney's every weekend, it's you know you, you, that that's not going to come through. Um, so, you know, I think that that's partly just inevitable with the topic that you're covering. But when students express strong opinions about this issue um, on either side, it, it seems to me that, that if you're expressing strong opinions in favor of, um, you know, whether it's trigger warnings or, or whatever, um, that it's portrayed as, well, they just haven't thought about this. They haven't thought about the first principles of free speech. Actually, I think that they're reacting as strongly as they are because they've spent quite a bit of time thinking about it. Um, and, and those are the conversations that occur at 2 a.m. when you should be writing a term paper that don't get covered. Okay, I'll be more lenient when I'm grading term papers now. <laughs> <laughs> Always a good thing. Um, if, if I can just interject very quickly, I think there's another component to this that we kind of alluded to but haven't discussed, which is the role of social media in all of this. Um, it's not as if, you know, the, the way the public learns about what's happening on co college campuses is limited to the Minnesota Daily, uh, the Star Tribune, and MinPost, and WCCO. Uh, you know, legislative leaders and others are getting a lot of information from people that are active in the social media sphere, may have their own agendas that they are trying to advance. And so I think, you know, as with everything else, caveat emptor in terms of what you're going to be looking at and, and how seriously you're going to take those things. Uh, can conclude with a final with a comment from um, one of our friends here in the audience. Uh, I'm a longtime Democrat and believe that it's vital that extreme conservatives be permitted to speak on this campus. Um, and I would second that. I mean, I think it's it's vital um, no matter where you are in the spectrum, both to challenge assumptions, to broaden your knowledge, to prepare you for the conversations that go on outside the walls of campus. And I think. One of the biggest challenges we have today is the pattern of, of us to um, go to the media sources or the social media sources that reinforce our ideas and give us the information that reinforce those ideas. And this has got to be a place that's a platform for different ideas uh, that challenge us, make us feel uncomfortable. Um, I want to thank uh, Mr. Ogren, uh, one of our star students here at the University of Minnesota. Thank you very much for joining us. And Professor Jane Kirtley, um, you're a very valuable member of this campus, and we thank you. Thank you. Um, I also want to mention that um, PEN America, which is a New York-based human rights uh, and literary organization, is holding two days of workshops um, tomorrow and on Wednesday. I've got more information here. Um, In they partnership with the Minnesota Student Association, I would add. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. MSA is part of it. Um, and if you're interested, I've got more information here on that. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks.